Beloved, please turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. Uh, we are in our 84th sermon uh, in the book of Romans, so if you are visiting with us today, uh, by next week, uh, you need to listen to all 83 previous sermons and get caught up. Uh, we have been in this book for quite some time, and so we're building, of course, on a lot of uh, Paul's teaching and arguments that he's been making over uh, the last eight chapters, and we began chapter 9 uh, just a couple of weeks ago. And this morning, uh, I'm going to read from verses 1 through 5, uh, but we're going to focus in on verses 4 and 5, since we uh, sort of zeroed in on verses 1 through 3 last time we were together. Uh, Would you please stand with me for the reading uh, of God's uh, holy, inerrant, inspired, and authoritative word? This is no ordinary word. This is the word of the living God. Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we do ask that you would be pleased to illumine our hearts and minds, that we would not just hear your word, but by your grace, believe it. Repent of our sin and cling to Christ by faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Our greatest hindrance in the Christian life is not our lack of effort, but our lack of acquaintedness with our privileges. Let me read that again. Our greatest hindrance in the Christian life is not our lack of effort, but our lack of acquaintedness with our privileges. Thus wrote John Owen, the renowned 16th century English Puritan, pastor, and theologian. I believe he's right. I believe he's right. We are too often unacquainted with our spiritual privileges, and it hampers our growth, our obedience and our usefulness as Christian believers. To be sure, a lack of effort can be a hindrance to the Christian life. Owen would not dispute that point. But Owen, his point here is that ultimately, it's something deeper than insufficient effort that hinders the believer's spiritual progress. Indeed, what hinders us is a lack of familiarity with our privileges in Christ. Spiritual privileges such as One, having 24-7 access to God, who sits on the throne of the universe, who sits on the throne of grace. Doesn't our prayerlessness speak to our lack of acquaintedness with this unspeakable privilege? We often find ourselves in a difficult predicament, and we do everything that we can do And then we say, well, we've done everything we could do. I guess all we can do now is pray, as if that's some kind of a downgrade and all the activity to respond to whatever challenge you're facing. 
but we say these kinds of things, don't we? That's because we are unacquainted with our privileges. Our crucified and risen King sits on the throne of grace and invites us to commune with Him in prayer, to cast our burdens upon Him and to intercede for others, and yet how little time we spend doing it. What a privilege we have. What a privilege we often neglect. How about the fact that we are indwelt and empowered by the Holy Spirit? What a privilege and blessing that is. God is not only with us, He abides in us by His Spirit. How often do we forget this fact, drawing from our own finite resources rather than from the power of the Holy Spirit? How often do we draw upon and rest in our own strength because we are unacquainted with the gift and benefits of the Holy Spirit in our lives? How about, thirdly, being God's spiritually adopted sons and daughters? Think about this. Let this sink in. God, if you are a Christian, God is your father, and Christ is your elder brother. Christians are your brothers and sisters. In Christ, we are part of the family of God. What a privilege. What support and encouragement this brings, especially in times of trial and suffering. But we often forget this, and we live in fear and isolation. Fourthly, we possess the inspired and authoritative Word of God. Most of us have multiple copies of this in our homes. What a privilege that countless believers all over the world do not have. Some don't even have the Bible in their own language. What a privilege that we have. But how often do we leave the Bible unread on the nightstand? Because we are truly unacquainted with its truth and wisdom and power. How about being members of the church? What a privilege this is. Receiving the means of grace. What a, what a privilege. What an amazing privilege to receive the gospel through word and sacrament week after week. But how often do we find ourselves neglecting this? Either just simply being here or being here mentally, spiritually. How often do we prioritize the passing things of this world over communion with God and fellowship with His people? We are all guilty of this. Dear ones, John Owen is right. A lack of acquaintedness with our spiritual privileges can hinder progress in the Christian life. But there is an arguably bigger problem. It's one that we see in the ancient people of Israel as well as in the lives of believers throughout history. This bigger problem is when one puts trust and confidence in their spiritual privileges rather than in Jesus Christ for salvation. This is precisely what the Israelites did in Paul's day. It's sadly what many do in our own day. Rather than cling to Christ as the sole grounds of salvation and justification, many instead instead trust in their spiritual heritage, their privileges. It's a perennial spiritual problem with dreadful consequences, eternal ones. So Paul, here in our text, was deeply sorrowful over the spiritual condition of his fellow Jewish countrymen, not least because Israel possessed this, this magnificent spiritual heritage. They were recipients of such amazing blessings from God, and yet they were hardened, nevertheless, in their unbelief. They rejected God's Messiah, the one who came from the very womb of the nation of Israel. 
Well, it's these privileges, uh, dear ones, that we're going to consider uh, this morning from verses 4 and 5 of chapter 9. Privileges that many enjoy in our own day and yet should not be an end in themselves because they are designed to point us to Christ. Just as in the Old Covenant, so in the New, spiritual privileges are designed to point us to the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ and to abide in Him. The first heading this morning uh, in, our, uh, in this sermon um, is a compassionate heart. A compassionate heart. It's a, a bit of a review of what I shared last time we were together in Romans. We spent time unpacking Paul's profoundly sympathetic words in verses 1 through 3. If you have your Bible, look there again with me at verses 1 through 3. Here we see Paul's compassionate heart. Paul writes, beginning in verse 1, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Again, a couple of weeks ago, we, we considered these verses, and we saw that Paul was heartbroken over the unbelief of his people, Israel. He's full of sorrow and anguish over their rejection of Christ. He loves them. He loves them so much that emotionally he's even sharing that he'd be willing to to exchange his own salvation for their being accursed if only they could be saved. Now, we know from the end of Romans 8 that Paul knows that this is an absolute impossibility. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. But it doesn't change the fact that Paul felt this way emotionally. He loved his people. He wanted to see them come to Christ, and he was heartbroken over their lostness. So Paul doesn't rush into a lesson on divine freedom and election in Romans chapter 9, as we Reformed believers are sometimes prone to do. No, he first expresses love for his unbelieving countrymen and his sorrow over their poor spiritual condition. You've often heard of the phrase cage stage for new Reformed believers. Uh, I won't, I won't uh, ask for a show of hands, but uh, I'm guessing uh, that many uh, in here have gone through that stage where you discover Uh, the doctrines of grace and God's sovereignty and election and predestination, and suddenly that which you abhorred five minutes before, now you need to tell everyone in the world that it's true, and they need to repent of all that they believe about uh, election and predestination and believe what the Bible says in Romans chapter 9. But we see that this is not really the right approach uh, to such things. Uh, We need, even as our confession says, to be careful, tender uh, with these doctrines that are for Christian believers and are meant to be a comfort to us and not uh, a two-by-four to bang over people's heads when they are not quite there yet. Here we see the heart of the Apostle Paul, even in a chapter which is known to be the chapter of focus on divine freedom and election as it concerns the people of Israel, he begins by sharing his heart, his broken heart, over the lostness of his unbelieving countrymen and their poor spiritual condition. He is concerned for their souls. 
He wants to win them to Christ. Paul is displaying the heart of a spirit-filled Christian. That is, one who is indeed concerned about the lost, those who are on the wide road that leads to destruction. William Hendrickson states this, quote, The person who is unconcerned about those who are perishing may well wonder whether he is a Christian, end quote. How can we say we believe in Christ, that we believe in heaven and hell, that we believe in what the Scriptures teach if we have absolutely no concern about where people will go for eternity? When we come to a section like this, we have to ask ourselves if we, like Paul, have a heart for the lost. Do we have a heart for our neighbors? Do we want them to come to Christ? Does it bother us? when people are living in spiritual darkness? Are we annoyed at people for not going to church as we drive to church on a Sunday morning? Or do we have a broken heart for them, of compassion, even praying for them, and opportunities to share with them? Maybe it's not to the same degree as the Apostle Paul, but does a love and compassion for the lost, a heart for the unchurched, a heart for the nations, have a place in our hearts? It's a question we all should ask ourselves. I ask myself this question as so often I find myself caught up in so many things in the world and all the responsibilities and all the burdens that we face, and I I sometimes don't give attention to the lostness of people around me. Oh, that we would have this heart, beloved, as a church, as individuals, as families. It's quintessentially Christian to have a loving burden for the lost. We cannot forget this. Churches die, if not numerically, spiritually, who do not have a heart for the lost. Amen? They die. And we don't want to die. We want to be full of life and vigor, passion for Christ. Christ came to seek and to save the lost. If we are in him, we will seek to share Christ with the lost who need him desperately, even as do we. Oh, that we'd have a greater anguish of heart over the lost condition of friends and family members and neighbors. May our hearts yearn to a greater degree for people to come to Christ, to be reconciled to God through Him. And as we considered a couple of weeks ago, it begins with prayer. We we must pray for lost friends and family members and neighbors and coworkers and teammates. It's when we pray for them that our heart begins to to cultivate uh, within us a love for them and a desire to see them saved. Well, Paul anguished over the salvation of Israel, especially especially in the light of the fact that they were the one nation that God chose to make known His covenants, His worship, His laws, His promises, and the people through which the Messiah would come. It's because, especially because, they had this spiritual privileged heritage that Paul ached and yearned for his people's salvation. This leads us to my second heading, a privileged heritage. We first of all see a compassionate heart, but then we see a privileged heritage. Look at verses 4 and 5 with me again. The apostle writes, They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, 
the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. To say that Israel, a nation descended from Abraham, was spiritually privileged, uh, is a profound understatement. Out of all the nations of the earth, Israel alone received these seven blessings from God enumerated in our text. What are these gifts and privileges? First of all, it says there that they received the adoption. The adoption. The old covenant nation of Israel was designated God's firstborn son. For example, in Exodus chapter 4, verses 22 and 23, when Moses was being instructed by God in, in what he would say to Pharaoh. It says this, quote, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve or worship me. In Hosea 11, verse 1, it says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Israel then, in a general sense, was God's adopted Son, just as in a general sense, they are his chosen people. But dear ones, it must be clarified that this adoption of Israel, as privileged of a gift as it was to them, this adoption of Israel as a nation is not the same adoption that Paul speaks of in Romans chapter 8. The individual spiritual adoption that occurs as a result of a person's union with Christ through faith. Nevertheless, the adoption spoken of in the Old Testament of the people of Israel is a profound privilege that Israel enjoyed above all the nations of the earth. God revealed himself to Israel and referred to them as his son, but that's only the first privilege Paul mentions. The second you'll notice in verse 4 is the glory. The glory. What does Paul mean by this phrase, the glory? Well, what's he referring to here? Well, he's referring to the manifestation of God's resplendent glory. God's resplendent glory in his appearances to and his meetings with the people of Israel. Other nations were left in their darkness and idolatry. Israel was not. What a privilege. Think for a moment of God leading his people through the wilderness with the the, the, the cloud and the, the pillar of fire where God manifested his glory in Exodus 14. Or consider the glory of the Lord that filled the tabernacle when it was completed in Exodus 40. Then fast forward to the glory of the Lord filling the temple when it was completed, so much so that uh, the priest could not even enter because of that mysterious glory. God's glory dwelt with Israel above the Ark of the Covenant. His presence was with them. They received the adoption, the glory, and thirdly, the covenants. The covenants. We know that God relates to mankind through sacred covenants. God's covenant with Abraham recorded in Genesis 15 and 17, and God's covenant with King David uh, in Second Chronic, Second Samuel, uh, these are examples of God's promised covenants. They were covenants initiated by God and highlighting His administration of the covenant of grace. 
And it was Israel alone who received these covenants, though they would later be received by many peoples. For God's covenant of grace was established for people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. God blessed Abraham that all the nations of the earth would be blessed. But Israel received these covenants. How often does Paul in his expressions of the gospel, even in Romans 1, say it's to the Jew first and also what? To the Gentiles. To the Jew first. All of these blessings came to the Jews first. The next one is the giving of the law. Paul mentions here the giving of the law. This, of course, refers to God's giving Israel the moral law on Mount Sinai through Moses. God etched the Ten Commandments onto two tablets of stone with his own finger, as it were, and he gave it to Israel. And this law, dear ones, would not only serve as a mirror, showing Israel their sin, showing them their need for atonement and salvation through the promises of God fulfilled in the Messiah, but also as a guide for the Christian life. The law not only shows us our sin, but it also is a guide to pleasing God and glorifying Him. And and Israel received this great privilege from God. Next, Paul mentions the worship. This referred to the God-established worship of Israel. First in the tabernacle and then in the temple. This worship, of course, was regulated by God and informed by God's word and designed through its ceremonies and sacrifices to point everyone forward to the coming of Christ and to his work. The great high priest and the lamb who would take away the sin of the world. Other nations worshipped idols in darkness, but Israel was given the true worship by the true and living God. What a privilege! And what a privilege for the children of the old covenant people of God who received circumcision because they too were beneficiaries of all of these blessings. The nation of Israel possessed the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, but that's not all. They also received the promises. What does this refer to? Well, it refers to all of God's saving promises to Israel. Over and over and over again do we see these promises, starting in Genesis 3.15 and and running throughout all of the Old Covenant. What a privilege to, to receive these promises, these astonishing promises of grace and salvation. Jesus, of course, is the fulfillment of those promises. He's the yes and amen of all of God's promises. And finally, in addition to all of these divine privileges to Israel belonged the patriarchs. The patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and others such as David, they served as as examples of the faith for the nation of Israel. Now you say, now I've been reading the the book of Genesis, Pastor John, and uh, these guys are kind of a mess. There's a lot of dysfunction in the patriarchal families. And in these a man in particular, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, others. Yes, this is true. But these men served as imperfect but true examples of faith for the nation of Israel. They were blessed, Israel was, with the patriarchs who received and transmitted God-saving promises to their children and their grandchildren. Israel had the patriarchs. What a privileged heritage they enjoyed. But there was a final privilege, not one that they possessed, but one that they were privileged to participate in, as it were. 
The final privilege that the Apostle Paul mentions in these verses is indeed a sublime one, an inestimable privilege for the nation of Israel. And what is it? God chose Israel to be the nation from which would come the Messiah, the blessed Son of God in the flesh. The Savior of the world would come from Israel. And this leads to our final heading, a divine Savior, a divine Savior. Look with me at the end of verse 5 there. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Many throughout church history have counted it a privilege uh, to have someone extraordinary come from their family, perhaps a president or a prime minister, a great leader, a world-famous athlete or astronaut or great inventor or perhaps a great preacher. Nations also take great pride in their noble sons and daughters, such as great war heroes. We see in any major city statues of heroes of war. But dear ones, all these together, all of these together could not match up to the privilege of Israel being the nation from which came God's eternal Son in the flesh, Jesus Christ, the one who is God over all and blessed forever. There are two things that we shouldn't miss here as it concerns this passage. Number one, Paul's sorrow over his countrymen's unbelief was intensified by the fact that the Messiah himself was born of Israel. Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, was Jewish, and the Jews rejected him. This was devastating to Paul. John Murray writes that, quote, the chief reason for the apostles' anguish was the rejection on Israel's part of that which brought to fruition the covenantal history which constituted their distinctiveness. The gravity of this rejection was pointed up by the uniqueness of Jesus' person, end quote. What fueled Paul's sorrow and anguish the most was that the Christ came from Israel, and yet Israel rejected him. Secondly, notice that Paul refers to Jesus as God over all, blessed forever. Did you notice this description when first read? Jesus was no ordinary prophet. Jesus was not just a man. He was and he is God. He is the eternal son of God in the flesh, fully God and fully man, two natures in one person. So to deny the deity of Jesus Christ is to deny the Christian faith. This is an essential, a foundational doctrine. Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Godhead. And Christianity is not true if that is not true. Jesus is divine, and so we worship him as our exalted God and king. He is God over all, blessed forever. So, dear ones, as we come to our conclusion this morning, 
We again see that the Apostle Paul launches into this chapter on divine election in relation to Israel's unbelief. Not by rushing into arguments and instruction, but by expressing his deep sorrow for his countrymen, especially in the light of the great spiritual privileges that they have. Soon enough, Paul will unpack the glorious and mysterious doctrine of God's sovereign election and salvation, of his divine freedom to have compassion on whom he will have compassion, to have mercy on whom he will have mercy. But before doing so, let it not be lost on us that he expresses love and compassion and concern and anguish and sorrow over his kinsmen and establishes the sublime privileges that they possessed. What lesson, though, are we to take away from this? What lesson are we to take away from these verses? Well, in addition to some of the things we've already considered, the main lesson, I believe, is this. Rejoice in your spiritual privileges, but do not trust in them for your salvation. Boys and girls, look up here at Pastor John for just a minute. You are extraordinarily privileged. You are growing up in a Christian family who brings you to church, who teaches you the scriptures, who prays for you, who teaches you how to pray, uh, who catechizes you. What a word, catechize. People are scared of that word sometimes. It's a wonderful word because you're learning in question and answer form the truth of God and scripture. All of these things you have and other boys and girls in other parts of the world don't have these things. They're living in darkness. They never hear about Jesus. They never sing hymns. They never sing psalms. Their father never reads the scripture to them. Their mother never prays for them. Nothing. So think of all the privileges you have. But here's the thing. This is not just for the boys and girls, but for all of us. We do not put our trust in those privileges. That is not our salvation because we are a member of a church or because we are involved in worship services or because we know Christians or our parents are believers. Those are all privileges, but our salvation comes only by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It's important to remember this. Where there's so much confusion in the church these days, we cannot forget this important point. Rejoice in your spiritual privileges, but do not put your faith in them for your salvation. Do not put your faith in your baptism for salvation or your church membership, or your bloodline, or your praying grandmother. Put your faith in Christ, the one to whom those privileges are designed to point you to. Trust Christ. Cling to him alone for grace and salvation. Katie Luther, Martin Luther's wife, said, I cling to Jesus as a burr clings to cloth even as he clings to us and holds us fast. Let us cling to him, not our good works or our spiritual privileges. One commentator explains that, quote, God's people Israel has, have received numerous gifts from God as a sign of his love for them, but tragically they have rejected the gospel to which all these gifts point, end quote. 
Like Israel, we who grew up in a Christian home and have been in and around churches all our lives can be deceived into thinking that the mere spiritual advantages themselves make us right with God. It's what I would have said before my conversion. Oh, yeah, I know the Apostles' Creed. I believe I'm a member of a church, even though I don't go, and I don't know the pastor's name. My parents are Christians. My grandparents were Christians. I learned Luther's Shorter Catechism. And the next question that should come by someone inquiring who loves them and wants to lead them to Christ would say, and? I remember my dear father in a conversation not long after I was converted, I asked my dad why he thinks he is a Christian. And he said, well, walking down the Via Della Rosa during a trip to Jerusalem was very meaningful to me. I said, and? He said, well, it really is meaningful for me to come to the Lord's table. I said, but dad, why? And he couldn't answer. And so we had a wonderful gospel conversation at the end by which he prayed to receive Christ as his Lord and Savior for the first time in his life. And he died in the Lord 11 years ago. But that's the thing. The devil will deceive us into thinking that a meaningful experience or some attachment to a family member or some membership in a church or a parachurch organization makes us right with God, and it does not. Those things are meant to point us to Christ, that we would hold fast to him alone. I wrote a paraphrase of Romans 9, 4, and 5. For modern believers, it could go something like this. They are the church. And to them belong the Bible, a Christian upbringing, the proclamation of the gospel through word and sacrament, Lord's Day worship, creeds and confessions, Sunday school and Bible studies, and the fellowship of believers. Dear ones, these are all sublime spiritual privileges, but they don't save us. Only Christ saves us. Only Jesus, who came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit, who became flesh, as our text states, and saved us. Only Jesus, fully God and fully man, born of a virgin, who fulfilled the law of God perfectly in our stead and then laid his perfect life down on the rugged cross at Calvary, fully atoning for our sins, bearing God's wrath and judgment in our place. Only he can save us. Spiritual privileges cannot save us. Only Jesus, the one who rose from the dead on the third day, conquering sin, hell, Satan, and death, only he can save us. Merely possessing spiritual privileges as Israel did does not save us from what our sins deserve. Only through union with Christ, by grace, through faith, and thus receiving his forgiveness and imputed righteousness can a sinner be saved. That is the good news of the gospel. Not be better, do better, and God might accept you one day. That's no gospel. The gospel is not good advice for moral living. The gospel is not, hey, aren't you spiritually privileged? You're, you're okay with God. Look how he's blessed you. No, the, God, the gospel, the good news, is that Christ died for sinners, of whom we are the foremost, and there is salvation in him. We had nothing to the equation. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. 
That's what Paul clearly states earlier in this letter in chapter 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, dear ones, may we neither neglect our spiritual privileges nor put our trust in them. Rather, may we rejoice in them and appropriate them in the way that God intended to drive us by faith to Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we are so deeply and profoundly thankful for all of our spiritual privileges. For those of us who grew up in a Christian home or are growing up in a Christian home, receiving baptism and being taught what that baptism means, what it points us to, learning the doctrines of the faith through confessions and creeds and catechisms, seeing the example of parents and other Christians as we grow up. Oh Lord, what a privilege to be in the worship of God, to hear the preaching of the gospel through word and sacrament, and to be vitally connected to the fellowship of the church. What privileges these are. But Lord, we know that in and of themselves, these privileges do not make us Christians. They do not save us from our sins. Only Christ can do that, and he has done that through his sinless life and atoning death and hell-conquering resurrection. Oh, Lord, we thank you for the gospel, this gospel that Paul proclaimed in, in Romans and this gospel that we hear this morning and by your grace believe. Lord, if there are any who do not believe, we pray that even today you would drop the scales from their eyes and unstop their ears and by your spirit give them a new heart that longs to know you and to give you glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.